Hello, everyone. How are we doing? I don't want to, uh, what's that called? Cast my lots, whatever that phrase is, but it's, sun, it's sunny outside. Okay, is everyone ready for this? I'm a rain person, and I have to say, I'm, I'm done with the rain. Um, I'm ready for it to be over. I'm ready for the sunshine. And this summer, unlike last, we have air conditioning in here. So get ready, guys. It's going to be amazing. Uh, all right, my timer is set. I am ready to go. We, what book are we in right now? First John. Uh, it has been so beautiful. I am loving. I, I don't know. I, I know I've read First John before. I haven't spent that much time in it, and I find I am so genuinely compelled by this body of work. Um, before we jump into our reading for today, Marissa's going to read for us, but um, kind of a little, you know those like clips at a, on a TV show kind of previously in, in First John? Uh, anyone else? Yeah, okay. You know what I'm talking about? Previously on The Mandalorian. Anybody? Yeah? Season three? Okay. All right. Uh, I did that whole setup just to see who was watching The Mandalorian. Uh, okay, John is writing to encourage faithful but struggling believers um, to hold on to truth in this book, despite a myriad of obstacles, primarily around the nature of faith. So he's not necessarily speaking to a church that's being persecuted, but he is speaking to a church that is being, um, that is under an onslaught of ideas, of alternatives to the faith, of alternatives to the Christian belief. And so he is kind of bringing forth the truth or the doctrine that we believe. Now there are a few few reoccurring themes. You'll see similar language, similar ideas over and over through the first five chapters, but a couple of them are present in our text today, and I want us to be aware before we dive in. First, John is going to talk about sin. He's going to talk about the habit of sin. He's going to talk about the ways in which we engage with sin, and that is kind of connected with or in conjunction with the way in which he is refuting the false teachers or false ideas about the Christian faith that are seeping into this early church. And more than anything, he wants to reassure the believers of their salvation. Now, this is important because John uses pretty stark language, uh, particularly in this book. He's going to talk about light and dark. He's going to talk about uh, saved or not saved, essentially in and out. And the language can feel quite jarring for us as we read it. It can feel quite intense. But what I want us to understand is that John is desperately trying to clarify what it actually means to be a follower of Jesus. There are false teachers, primarily from the Gnostics, more on them in a minute, that are flooding this young church, and there's confusion. There's a lack of clarity. And so John's heart is to reassure them, this is what the faith looks like. This is what it means to be a part of it. Okay, so keep those in mind as we read our verses today. Marissa, why don't you come on up? So 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, and I'm reading from the CSB, which will be, yeah, let me turn it on for you. Uh, which will be on the screen behind me. Um, all right, here we go. Yeah, it's right in there. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. 
This is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him and yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Thank you. All right, yeah. Okay, so let me put this down here. Before it rolls off and we break another one of those, that is the mic that always gets broken in church, just rolls right off. Okay, so this evening, we are quite simply gonna walk through this passage together. Uh, it's not always the way that I preach, but as I sat with it, I think it is gonna empower the best understanding of what John is trying to get at. Sound good? Okay, so let's look at verse one itself. John says, little children, remember he is very old at this point, possibly uh, late 80s. And so anyone younger than him is a child in comparison. So little, it's not derogatory, it's uh, affectionate. So my little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not, or the NIV says, will not sin. Everything I put here, John is saying, is so that you do not enter into or participate in or commit yourself to a habit or a life of sin. Now, John, just a few verses earlier says this, if we say we have no sin, this is in verse eight of chapter one, we are deceiving ourselves. So he is not oblivious or unaware of the human predicament, of the reality that we wrestle with sin but rather than a sort of acceptance posture of sin or the denial, which was the Gnostics way, that sin existed at all, John's deepest desire is that all believers pursue something far more beautiful and profound and compelling. And here's why. If you think back to the way that John begins his, this is called a poetic sermon, it's not even a letter, but in chapter one, and I'm actually gonna read it from the message, but this is how he begins this book, okay? I think we have it there, AJ. Oh, Marissa, wow, she's back, everyone. Okay, this is from the message translation. This is 1 John 1, one through four. From the very first day we were there, taking it all in, he's speaking about the apostles. We heard it with our own ears. We saw it with our own eyes. We verified it with our own hands. The word of life appeared right before our eyes. We saw it happen. And now we are telling you in the most somber prose that what we witnessed was incredibly this, the infinite life of God himself took shape before us. And we saw it and we heard it. And now we are telling you so that you can experience it along with us, this experience of communing with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Can you imagine for a moment witnessing the eternal life of creation itself in the very flesh fully and completely human, not half God and half man, fully, fully man. That which was eternal became temporal. That which was infinite became finite. N.T. Wright says that this is the most least understood aspect of the gospel, that Jesus was fully and completely like us, flesh and blood. And yet, John says in verse five of that first chapter, that he is the light and there is 
absolutely no darkness in him. You see, John is not setting an impossible standard, do not sin. He is giving us an entirely new vision for mankind. This is someone who saw in the very flesh light without darkness, goodness without sin, humanity without any faults. Can you imagine for a moment what that must have felt like? And I think John is desperately desirous not to just impart to us how cool it was that Jesus was this way, but how glorious that that was God's intention for all of us. John, the last of the disciples, the last of the ones who was really there, who really saw him, who watched Jesus day in and day out, who watched him from life to death to life again, from friendship to betrayal, from joy to unimaginable suffering, and through it all, absolutely no darkness, no sin, no hate, no unforgiveness, no bitterness, no arrogance, no pride, no, not a drop of lust, not an ounce of greed, none of it. This is the image of Jesus. This is John's experience of the eternal life made flesh. And I think it drives him to call you and I to more, a higher vision of ourselves, a higher vision of what God created us for, because it is the sinless state of one man that we have hope for all mankind. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I love, I quote him basically every sermon at least once, I think it's twice today, he said this, Christ took upon himself this human form of ours. He became man even as we are men, and in his humanity and his lowliness, we recognize our own form. He has become like a man so that men should be like him. And in the incarnation, the whole human race, the whole human race recovers the dignity of the image of God. John Stott more simply puts it like this, in Christ's person, I think I have it, we see humankind as he can be and through Christ's person, we see ourselves as we will be. So in view of this, John says, I am writing these things to you so that you do not sin because I have seen what it looks like when humanity lives in the perfection God intended and it is beautiful. Here, John holds intention because he doesn't leave us there, right? He continues, but if anyone does sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. That word there in Greek, advocate, is a, it says it's a willing, uh, the, the translation basically is like someone who willingly steps forward, someone who of their own volition comes into the story. We have a willing advocate on our behalf. He himself, this is verse two, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but for those of the whole world. You see, John stands in verse one and verse two of this chapter, holding in tension the most glorious and foundational reality of the Christian faith. 
that when we were created from the moment that God breathed his own breath into our lungs, we were made to be light without darkness. We were made to be joy without pain. We were made to be life without sin. This was the intent. And this continues to be God's desire for us to be without sin. But at the same time, all that is broken in us, all that is darkness in us, all that is sin in us has already been atoned for. And this, friends, is the space we need to live, where every desirous, where we are desirous of ourselves and our people to be more and more like Jesus, where we don't leave each other to sin that is damaging and hurtful, that we want to be perfect light with absolutely no darkness. And yet, simultaneously, when we confess our sins, we are fully and completely covered in grace and mercy, fully atoned for. And we can stand there without any sense of guilt or shame or any sense that the Father is disappointed in us. Both things are true. And if we grasp this, if we are followers of Jesus who will live in that tension, that the vision of Jesus stirs us towards a life without sin, while at the same time, Jesus himself holds us and covers us. And when we sin, we confess. If we live there, we will live in a place of such freedom and transformation. Both things are true. You with me? All right, let's move on. It's a lot in two verses. <laughs> All right, verse three. Let's read from verse three to six again. John writes, this is how we know that we know him. If we keep his commands. The one who says I have come to know him and yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truth, truly in him, the love of God is made complete. And this is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. There are two kind of big ideas in these couple of verses. Firstly, like I said, John wants to reassure these believers of their faith. This is how you know. And he actually uses this phrase again and again. He goes so far in chapter five as to say, this is how you know, or so that you may know you have eternal life. He wants us to be secure in our foundation. Can you imagine for a moment the early church? I don't know about you, but I have so many questions about faith and the Bible, and there feel like so many things. I heard a sermon once uh, by a guy called Mike Polavacci, and he said the most frustrating uh, phrase in the Bible, I think it's in Mark, is where Jesus says to the disciples, there are so many things I wish I could tell you, but I'm going to the Father. And he's like, well, stay, tell us a few of them. And that's how I feel about faith. And we have 2,000 years of history. We have the Bible. We have church doctrine. We have all of these things to help us understand what the faith is. The first generation of believers had none of that. They had no canon of scripture. They had no established church government. They had no written doctrine. And so John's heart is to embolden the listeners in their faith. This is how you know that you know him. You can know that you know Jesus, even without all of those things. And here for us still today lies perhaps one of the most honest wrestles in our faith. 
Faith is what? The assurance of things hoped for? The certainty of things unseen? Well, John wants us to be sure in that position. How do I know that I know God? What about when I don't feel him? What about when I can't sense his presence? What about when I walk into a church gathering and it's just like nothing? Worship, sing the songs, listen to the message, just nothing, just dead inside. How do I know that I know him? What about when I, when I don't hear his voice? When it's been a long time since I feel like I've read the scriptures and anything has really permeated, anything is really stuck, anything has felt like the inspiration of the Holy Spirit kind of igniting something in me. What about then? How do I know that I know him? What about when he doesn't show up in the way that I expected? When he doesn't do the things that I thought he would, the things that I prayed for him to do? What about then? How do I know that I know him? Well, John says, this is how you know that you know him. If we keep his commands. It kind of feels counterintuitive. It kind of feels like a, a, a little, uh, I don't know, at odds with one another. But you see, there is intimacy in obedience. There is intimacy in obedience, in, in the alignment of our souls with the eternal intention for our souls. Lewis puts it like this, to know God is to know that our obedience is due him. So even when I don't feel him, and even when I can't hear him, and even when I feel disappointed by him, I can know that I know him when I obey him, when I align myself with him. If we are abiding in his truth, if we are walking as we, he walked, if we are in him, John says we can experience a communion with the Father through our choices to keep his truth and obey his commands. That's amazing. I can't hear his voice, but I am gonna walk as he walked and I am gonna imagine Jesus is there with me every step I take. And when we experience, friends, seasons of isolation and separation, if we lean into obedience, we don't lean into isolation. We don't lean out of community. We lean into obedience. And when I do, when I act that discipline out of walking in the way of Jesus, I can encounter a deep and profound knowing. I found that so beautiful. Every time I choose love, every time I choose forgiveness, every time I choose grace and patience, I am choosing him and through my choice, I can know him. But not only is John wanting to bring assurance, he is also refuting the idea that we can know God without having to do what God says. This phrase in verse four, he used similar ones throughout. The one who says, in chapter one, a couple times he says, uh, if we say, okay, every time he uses that phrase, he's refuting a, a specific truth or a specific uh, false uh, a heresy that has seeped into the church. So if the one who says, what? 
I have come to know him, yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. You see, here's where the Gnosticism comes in. The Gnostics believed, among many things, that the body didn't matter, okay? It was all about spiritual or mental ascent. The Gnostics focused on the eradication of ignorance rather than the eradication of sin. So if we can just think the right thoughts, believe the right things, we are fine, right? They also believe that the body wasn't actually created by big God. Uh, the body was created by kind of a lesser being. So it, it just didn't matter to the big God. Does that make sense? Okay, so you can imagine what that kind of belief does to an early church of Jesus' followers. The body doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do in the flesh. And so it gave room for all kinds of license in the practice of the faith. And John comes in and he's saying, friends, it is not about just believing the right things or mentally assenting to the right things. That's not what faith is. Because Jesus himself in John's, in John's gospel, John 14, he says what? If you love me, what? Keep my commands. You see, Jesus himself inextricably links obedience to the love of God. They are inseparable to Jesus. Therefore, they are inseparable to us. Obedience and the love of God go hand in hand. And alternatively, John is saying, if someone's life is not on the whole oriented towards obedience to God's commands, there is no reason to believe they really know him. And that is deeply challenging. I can't deny it when he says, they're a liar. I, I wish I could tell you that means something else in the Greek. It doesn't. It means a liar, okay? John is very strong on this. If our lives are not oriented towards obedience, the question has to be asked, do we know him? Now, it doesn't mean overnight we make all the right choices. It doesn't mean overnight sin is eradicated in our lives, right? John says, if you say you have no sin, you are deceived, okay? but we have to live in a way that our lives are oriented different. We have to live in a way that obedience to the word of God, to the person of Jesus plays a role in our existence. We are not saved by works. We know that, right? I know some beautiful people who do some of the things that Jesus asks us to do. They love their neighbor. They're generous, they're kind, they're forgiving. But just because they do those things doesn't mean they follow Jesus. But the other side is true. If we who say we follow Jesus don't do those things, then do we follow Jesus? One of my favorite quotes by Tozer uh, is this, you do not believe a thing rightly until you act in accordance with it. Whew, it's right there. I mean, it's, uh, I don't know if I can, I feel so convicted. <laughs> You do not believe a thing rightly until you act in accordance with it. And although Gnosticism is not a permeating view, maybe in our day and age, this dualism is. And the challenge for you and I is to lean into a posture of obedience. We wrestle with this still, ideologically and practically in our modern era. I've got something from Dallas Willard as well. He says, we do not believe by merely saying we believe it, or even when we believe that we believe it, we believe something when we act as if it is true. 
He continues on to say, the greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, and practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of heaven into every corner of human existence. This is what John is talking about. Steadily learning from him how to live. Friends, if we say we know him, this has to be true of us, that we are steadily learning from him how to live. And I want us to recognize that this, this is, I think, such, I read an article this um, week called The New Gnosticism, and it was talking about this kind of dualism in church, this kind of Christian idea without any kind of practice. And it grieves me to think that I would participate in a system that operates like this, when the vision Jesus gave us was so good and so beautiful, but I'm unwilling to participate in it. You see, we live in an era where what? My experience is more important than biblical truth. We live in an era where my opinion informs doctrine. We do. I was thinking this week, I was singing with my one little kid, uh, Jesus loves me, this I know. How do I know that? For the Bible tells me so. If I don't have the word of God, how do I know? How do I know Jesus loves me? How do I know that he came and he died for me? Without the word of God, friends, we cannot know. I believe in Jesus, but not the Bible. I've heard that, right? I don't think we can. I don't think scripture allows us. I believe in Jesus, but his views on sexuality or his views on money are outdated or archaic. No, friends, even if you wrestle with the Bible, and I get it, but the Bible is still the word of God and it is from there that we understand what Jesus says. If you love me, obey my commands. How do we know what his commands are? This, this. John Mark, who isn't here tonight, I was gonna laugh quoting him to him, but uh, thank goodness he's gone. So, this John Mark Homer, we have become, as a society, think about the dualism here, we have become about feeling good, not being good. The good life has become about getting what we want, not becoming the kind of people who want good things. We wanna be the kind of people who want good things. I want to be the kind of person who wants to live without sin because I think it is the best thing. Because I think it is so exhilarating and beautiful and awesome to pursue the life and the work of Jesus. I want to be in a good, in the good things. Not just the things that I want out of my flesh and out of my sinful nature. And so John is calling them back. And in the same way, can I say, he is calling us back to desire good things, to keep about the good things. Walk just as Jesus walked. 
Many of us grew up in traditions, and there's nothing wrong with this in and of itself, but that said, believe and be saved. You do have to believe to be saved. But Jesus said what? Come and follow me. Come. Leave everything behind. Leave your plans, your professions, your family. Come and follow Do what I did. Follow my ways, my works, my prayer life, my habits, my love for the poor and the needy, my ability to sit with those that no one else wants to sit with. Come and follow my ways. And then he takes it one step further, three years later, and go and make disciples. Come and follow and go. The Christian faith is a doing faith. It is an entire being faith because our bodies are the primary way in which we work out our spiritual life. They are the primary resources for good or for evil, for light or for darkness. It's right here in my hands and the things that come out of my mouth in the ways in which I use my body, light or dark. It's here that I get to practice what I believe, not in theory, not in ideation, not even in conversation, and I love a good theology conversation, but that's not where I work out my faith. I work it out in the flesh. And when we live there, John writes, when we live as he lived, when we live in a posture of obedience, never, he's not asking for perfection, he's asking for right orientation. When I live there, this is what I love, John writes, The love of God is made complete. The love of God, the ESV says, is perfected. That is a beautiful vision of the Christian life, that when I abide in him, that when I obey his truth, that when I walk as he walked, his love, the eternal, unending love of God is perfected in me, in my flesh, in my body, is perfected, that which is eternal is perfected in the temporal, here in our beings. And I think, man, I think tonight God wants to lift up our eyes again to see his vision of humanity. Not, well, we're all human, but equally not, we're so bad, I'm so full of sin. No, something completely different. It's the vision of Jesus, light with absolutely no darkness, human with absolutely no sin. I'm gonna ask us to take a minute. We're gonna go into communion in a sec, but let's just, let's just allow for some alignment in ourselves tonight. If you're comfortable, you can close your eyes, you can open your hands, you can get on your knees, whatever you wanna do. And I'm gonna ask us to sit for a moment or two in his vision for humanity. In the beginning, God created man and woman. And he said it was good. It was perfect and pleasing to the one who is perfect. 
And I want to ask that before we come to the table, that we would lift the eyes of our hearts and our souls and our minds. And we would, even if in part, we would see what John saw. That it would be tangible. That we would feel like we can almost touch it. Jesus. Beautiful, perfect Jesus. Kind, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, patient, full of joy, full of hope. We fix our eyes on that Jesus this evening. I have a picture of like a marble statue of Jesus that's just attached and covered in cobwebs. It's almost as if you're sitting there going, I, I think I used to think Jesus was like that. But man, he is covered in all kinds of dirt and grime. The things that have been said, the things that have been taught, the things that I've experienced... Holy Spirit, won't you come and won't you clear that all away? All the cobwebs, all the dirt, all the grime, so that that which is good and true and beautiful stands before us. And we can receive his love and his affection and his vision for us.